Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we learn all about bone marrow transplants. The red cells that carry oxygen that we need to live, the platelets that help us stop bleeding, and the white cells that keep us protected from infection, those are all made from stem cells that typically live in the bone marrow. Plus, what factors drive the modern human to eat more and more? In humans, the major driver behind food intake nowadays is either there's a habitual driver, so we eat by habit, or we also eat by hedonic reward. And we look at the advantages of 3D mammography. It decreases the exposure for the patient. It decreases the compression needed to see the uh, structures within the breast. And it also increases patient comfort. We'll get a checkup from the neck up and hear a selection from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we discover the powerful scientific connection between your emotions and your appetite. Plus, why 3D mammography will be the definitive screening device for breast cancer. But first, all about bone marrow transplantation and how it's saving lives. Each year, nearly 20,000 people might benefit from, from a potentially life-saving bone marrow or umbilical cord blood transplant. And here to tell us more about this life-saving procedure is Dr. Matthew Elkins. He's the Director of Transfusion Medicine at Upstate Medical University and University Hospital, and he's also the Medical Director for the SUNY Upstate Cord Blood Center. Welcome, Dr. Elkins. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. So let's begin by helping us understand what we mean when we say the words bone marrow transplant. What exactly sure. is that? Well, the first thing is to define what is bone marrow. Um, so all the cells that make up our, our blood, so the red cells that carry oxygen that we need to live, the platelets that help us stop bleeding, um, and the white cells that keep us protected from infection, those are all made from um, stem cells that typically live in the bone marrow. So those are actually the progenitors. Without them, we cannot, we won't survive. You need all those elements of the blood. So those are, the, those are our bone marrow stem cells. So why do we need a transplantation of those? In what circumstances might someone benefit from one of those? Let's mm -hmm. talk about that. So a bone marrow transplant is typically where we're taking bone marrow that's um, going to work and putting it into somebody whose bone marrow isn't working. And there's two general um, categories we talk about that, where someone is donating their own marrow cells for themselves, or autologous, and where we're taking bone marrow from one person and putting it into another. So just to take the autologous one for right now, um, that's where it's a, typically a patient who um, has some sort of disease, typically some of the types of leukemias or a blood cancer, um, and we have medications that do a really good job of killing that cancer, but at the same time will end up killing their marrow. So they won't survive, which is not what the result we want. Right. So what we found is that we can actually collect some of their stem cells ahead of time, put them in a freezer, so keep them safe, then give the patient that chemotherapy that will kill off their leukemia. Then we can rescue them, uh, rescue that patient with their stem cells that we kept in the freezer. So it's we typically call that a rescue rather than tr a true transplant. So in that case, the, you're using the person's own blood cells, but they right. had a disease. Yes. Is it possible that the cells that you have rescued prior to treatment might carry that disease back to the person? It is possible, and that's why there is a limited subset of which diseases this can be used for. Um, the classic example is multiple myeloma, which is a disease of plasma cells that make antibodies. And those cells typically don't circulate, so they stay in the bone marrow. Now, we'll talk later about how you get those stem cells. But if we take them from the circulating cells, 
we typically won't get those plasma cells that are neoplastic, the, the cancerous cells. So you avoid the potential for right. reinfecting, so to speak. Yes. Using that term is not really accurate, but re reintroducing right. the disease back into that person. And we typically talk about that as being a cure, although some people never have recurrence, but they will have disease-free time. Usually the average is between five and seven years from the time of the autologous transplant. Um, and then they might have their disease come back, that multiple myeloma comes back, but it comes back slowly. It's kind of starting from the ground zero at that point. So it's a, it's a very good um, option for people who, for whom it's appropriate. So, um, so the other kind is where people are given from a donor right. their bone marrow stem cells. And tell us when might that happen and why? Sure. And that, that we call allogeneic or one person to another, a true transplant. Um, and that's often done for two large reasons. One would be any of those leukemias or lymphomas where we can't do an autologous, where no, we've tried that they've tried this in the past, auto transplants don't work because we will end up getting some of those cancerous cells. Or it's um, where the person's bone marrow doesn't work. So for example, um, sickle cell disease, most people know about that. That's an inborn error of their bone marrow cells that they, their hemoglobin they make doesn't work as well for them. And there's lots of complications with that. The only true cure for that is actually giving them new bone marrow to make cells that don't have that defect. Um, and that's one example. There are other diseases, the bubble boy, so severe combined immunodeficiency or SCID, that's where someone's immune system doesn't work. They're genetically unable to make mature white cells. So they don't have any protection from bacteria and viruses, fungus, all the stuff that's outside that wants to kill us. Hence have to live in a, buzz, in a bubble. Yes. Um, and for those patients, the only true cure right now is getting somebody else's marrow that will make functional immune cells. So that must be a complex process, though, to find a match, right. I would think, somewhat... Is it more complex or less than perhaps a kidney transplant, for example? It's it's very similar, and they you actually have two issues with bone marrow transplant, where if you're giving somebody a kidney, um, you have to worry about the immune system. So our immune system is designed to recognize things that aren't us, and it's presumed to be somebody invading, right? It's bacteria, it's it's uh, parasites, so it will attack that. So if we put in somebody else's kidney, we have the risk of rejection. So the immune system of the recipient recognizing that kidney as foreign and killing it. Um, when we we're doing a bone marrow transplant, we have all those risks. So the recipient's immune system may recognize that graft is foreign and kill that marrow. Now you have someone who doesn't have a marrow at all, which is not good. We also have the risk that when that marrow, if that marrow doesn't get rejected, it gets incorporated and starts making the, all the blood cells we expect, red cells and platelets, that's great. It will also be making white cells. But those white cells may recognize, again, that came from somebody else, they may recognize the person who got that transplant as foreign. And so they'll attack it. Yes. They'll attack, they'll attack the host, so to speak. So those, those new immune cells may recognize the, the, the recipient, the patient, all their tissues as foreign and will actually attack it. And... Um, that used to be very fatal. We've gotten much better treatments for it. Still is fatal in about 30%, um, which is better than 100. <laughs> but there's a lot of morbidity. So there's a lot of symptoms associated with that rejection. Graffer's host. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Dr. Matthew Elkins. We're talking about bone marrow transplants. So I guess the, the key here to understand is that a bone marrow transplant is really a stem cell transplant. And those stem cells are blood stem cells that will then go on to produce the kinds of blood cells that we all need to live. And the choices as to what to use, whether you do it from your own material or you get it from a donor, have to do with the nature of your disease. That's correct. Do people who have... Um, other types of cancer need that kind of a stem cell transplant because the chemotherapy being so aggressive might kill off their bone marrow? Absolutely. Um, for example, um, kids who have neuroblastoma, it's a, it's a cancer in the brain, very aggressive. 
and we'll, we'll kill the patient if we don't treat it very aggressively. The aggressive types of chemotherapy that are needed will actually kill the, that child's marrow. So we will do the autologous, that's where we take their own stem cells, again, take them separate out of the patient into a freezer so they're safe, give them the chemotherapy, and then we'll reinfuse, once that chemotherapy is out of their system, reinfuse those stem cells so they can repopulate their marrow and make all the, stem, the blood cells they need. So overall, mm-hmm. and obviously it's a case-by-case case and depends on the particular disease entity and what have you, which of the two, mm-hmm. getting it from yourself or getting it from someone else, are preferable or, mm-hmm. you know, just a brief overview of what are the benefits versus the sure. potential disadvantages? So it's an easy decision. If, you can, if your disease um, uh, is amenable to autologous, so using your own, that's always better because there are so many fewer risks. Long-term outcomes are so much better. But if your disease, so for example, if, you, if we can't do an autologous, we have to use somebody else's, then we have to use somebody else's. If auto we know won't actually help you in your disease, there's no point in doing it. How are these, I mean, what are the sources of these mm-hmm. cells? I mean, that's, I think, I understand they come from several sources, the main one being the bone marrow itself, but you talk about harvesting peripheral blood cells. So how does one do that? Sure. So there, there's three real ways to get these marrow stem cells for this bone marrow transplant we're talking about. Um, the old way of doing it, which is still done in about um, 10, 15 to 20% of cases nationwide, is to actually have the person anesthetized under general anesthetic and take a big needle and go into their marrow. Most commonly, we use the, the bones of the hip of the pelvis um, and take out some of that marrow. And that's what we call a marrow harvest. The other way of doing it, um, which is the most common way nowadays, 60 to 70% of bone marrow transplants, is where we actually give drugs to patients um, that pushes, that makes their marrow make more stem cells. They hyperproduce. But also pushes them out into the periphery. Because you and I sitting here right now, we have stem cells in our body, but they're not circulating. So we can't get at them other than by taking a needle to your, to your marrow. But if we give these drugs and get the stem cells out into the circulation, we can actually use a machine called an apheresis machine. That's another one of my titles. I, I'm the director of our facility at Upstate, um, where we can actually send their blood through this machine. We take out those stem cells and return all their red cells, all their platelets, all their plasma, all wow. the stuff they need. It can identify just the stem cells. It's, we will get out the stem cells. It's not as specific as we would like. There's still research going on to make it even more specific, but yes. And you can harvest sufficient numbers of mm-hmm. the peripheral blood of cells within the peripheral blood um, in, 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 in order to do this kind of a transplant. We actually get... Or does it have to happen on multiple occasions, that kind of thing? So typically with, with our new medications and with our new machinery, we're typically doing a single day collection for a lot of these transplants and getting sufficient, we actually get more than we got with the average for marrow. We get two to three times as much doing peripheralized as we did with the, the old needle uh, method. And the third method or the third um, source is umbilical cord blood. Tell us right. briefly about that. I don't want to run out of time. I have a number of right. more questions for you. So um, the, the third way of doing it is actually um, when new baby is delivered, there is blood in the umbil- in the umbilical cord and the placenta. Those are typically thrown away as medical waste. But in, the, in those um, cells, there are actually stem cells, just like the stem cells we have in our marrow. Um, and those can be harvested at the time of the placenta before it's thrown away. Um, and we, we actually bank those and, and freeze them and store them. And then if there is need for them later, we can thaw those out and give them to a patient. So hence the term umbilical cord blood bank. Yes. So basically, does, do these transplants, again, I don't want to run out of time, mm-hmm. do these transplants effective in solving the problems that we might face should we be <laughs> without bone marrow? Oh, yes. Um, it, we're really talking about diseases that are fatal otherwise. Um, whether, whether it is leukemias or inborn errors, these are, this is a definitive way of helping the patient survive. Are, they with, are there downsides? Absolutely, just like there are with any other intervention. 
but they, they are life-saving. They are life-saving. Very briefly, how would someone get involved if they wanted to donate? Just mm-hmm. very briefly. So there are two ways. The first way is if you want to donate cord blood. Once we have the bank open this year, um, at the time of delivery, we can take that those, those cord bloods and um, those can be donated for use. The other way of getting involved is actually registering to be a donor. Um, so umbilical cord, we freeze ahead of time to see if there's a donor in the future. For adult stem cells, we there isn't a bank out there. Instead, um, there are different organizations. National Marrow Donor Program is the largest one in the U.S. that register people. And when they have a patient that matches that person, they will call on that person to have them donate stem cells at that time. Um, National Marrow Donor Program, you can sign up for it anytime, and they have drives to try to identify people who, who would be candidates in the future for donations. So the sources are there. Yes. And it's very hopeful in terms of actually really saving lives. I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing this very interesting and hopeful information with us. My guest has been Dr. Matthew Elkins. He's Director of Transfusion Medicine at Upstate Medical University and University Hospital and the Medical Director for the SUNY Upstate Cord Blood Center. Coming up next, the powerful scientific connection between emotions and your appetite. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, Linda Cohen along with you. The current incidence of anorexia nervosa is around 8 per 100,000 people per year in this country and is associated with a high rate of mortality. Here with more on this and how and why people lose their ability to want to eat is Patrick Sweeney. He's a PhD student in Upstate's College of Graduate Studies. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. So anorexia nervosa remains a big problem in this country, and you've been studying the relationship between emotion and appetite. Tell us about that. Tell us about this whole thing called feeding behavior that you've been looking at. Right. Uh, So as we know, feeding is an essential behavior. We all eat every day. We need to eat in order to survive. So because of this, feeding is regulated by a wide variety of factors. So some of this are genetic. There's many genetic factors that can regulate your feeding behavior, but there's also environmental factors. Let me stop you there for a second. When you say genetic factors, what do you exactly mean? Do you mean someone is born with a predisposition to eating a certain way or a certain amount or something of that nature? Exactly, yeah. So if um, if someone has obesity, then their siblings or their... Um, children are more likely to become obese. And you're suggesting that that's because of an actual genetic relationship there as opposed to habits that you develop over life. Right. Yeah, there is definitely a genetic factor that is involved, but it's a complicated factor and there's a lot of work being done to look into that. Um, But there's also, as we know, a strong environmental factor. And this is apparent, as we can see in the prevalence of fast food, and uh, in society. So the availability of fast food has led to an extreme increase in obesity over the last decade or so. And if you look at the statistics, that has skyrocketed over the last 10 or 15 years. So this is an example of an environmental influence that can lead to an increasing rate of obesity, for example. How about things like exercise? There's been some talk over the years that as we become more um, less mobile or less active because things are made so much easier for us, we all drive as opposed to having to exactly. walk. So. Exactly. That's that's definitely another factor. That's one of the reasons why you see like with Michelle Obama, there's a big drive Um, to see increased exercise. There's a number of initiatives out there to to drive for increased exercise. That's another environmental influence um, that is involved in your feeding behavior. So energy expenditure is another factor that influences food intake. The more active you are, 
um, the more food intake you need to eat. But what about this idea of, you know, this idea of, you know, eating is a basic need. To survive, you must eat. How does that affect, you know, whether you eat for, you know, because you, you, you um, eat to live versus you live to eat? Because some people eat for pleasure, and that seems to overtake perhaps the instinct to just eat in order to stay alive. Right. Um, so the literature kind of says there's, there's two main factors that govern food intake. So one is homeostatic control of food intake. So when you're hungry, for example, there are brain regions or brain circuits that will drive you to consume food. And when you're full, there are also brain regions or brain circuits that will drive you to stop eating. And this is, you can sort of think of it as a, a thermostat or a switch that will drive you to either stop eating or to eat. And actually in humans, um, this is thought to be not the main mechanism for driving food because we were lucky enough that we have food available everywhere, right? So in, in the past, early on in evolution, this was the main mechanism because we didn't have food available everywhere. But now we, we do have food everywhere. So you're saying that kind of genet or that kind of natural um, thermostat doesn't play as much of a role in today's world because of the accessibility of food. So what plays the bigger role here? Well, it's thought that in, in humans, the major driver behind food intake nowadays is either there's a habitual driver, so we eat by habit, or we also eat by hedonic reward. So there's been much work recently into the fact that food is a rewarding, uh, is rewarding. So it's, so we eat for pleasure? Right. So you may go to um, whatever your favorite food is, whether it's fast food like McDonald's or ice cream. We've all experienced the fact that eating that food gives us a reward. We get pleasure in that eating that food. So that can actually drive you or motivate you to consume food. Well, one can understand how that might play a role in something like obesity, but how does it then play a role, if at all, in something like anorexia where you are denying yourself food? Well, that's that's a little complicated, but presumably you could think that these people lose the ability to get pleasure from eating food. So in disorders like depression, for example, one of the main symptoms is it's called anhedonia. So they lose pleasure from circum from situations that are normal normally rewarding. So for someone who has anorexia, for for normal individuals, eating a donut or eating ice cream is rewarding. They like that. But for someone with anorexia, it's the exact opposite. That there is nothing worse in the world for these individuals than um, eating something like a donut. So there is, we believe that the brain circuits that govern uh, hedonic reward are miswired in these individuals. And that's what we look into. So you think they actually become miswired or they, or they start out as being miswired? I mean, is there some theory there in terms of how this all occurs? It's probably, um, it's probably both. It's probably a relationship between a, a strong genetic component, but also obviously an environmental component. So stress probably plays a role emotion states play a role. Um, obviously, in, in Western society, where there's such a drive to be thin, um, this has a factor for people developing anorexia. You can see in the fact that anorexia is much more prevalent in females than it is in males. That right there gives you an idea that there's probably an environmental or social component as well. So basically what you're saying is that there's a genetic and, a, and an environmental those factors all play a role in how you end up in terms of your eating patterns. But how does emotion affect appetite specifically? And what exactly did you find or in your study? But before you go there, I just want to say, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Patrick Sweeney. We're talking about the link of emotion and appetite and eating disorders. Right. So you just published a study yep. in the Journal of... Science, nature communications. Tell us about that. So in that paper, we, we wanted to try to determine how emotion affects food intake. And we know that emotion and food intake have a bidirectional relationship. So food intake can affect emotion, and emotion can affect food intake. So an example of that, like I said before, when you eat food, it can give you rewarding satisfaction. It can change your emotion state. And the other end of the spectrum 
emotion states like stress can affect your food intake. So when you're stressed, you can either eat less. We've probably all experienced when we've been stressed and it's affect our appetite. Or actually on the opposite, when you're stressed, you can eat more. So you can drive yourself to try to eat these rewarding hedonic foods to try to cope with the stressor. So like comfort food comfort is the word food, that exactly. everyone's talking about. So what were you attempting to do? What was your hypothesis and what exactly did you do in your study? So we focused on a brain region. It's called the ventral hippocampus. And this brain region is long thought to be involved in emotion. And there's been some previous work that also has shown that it's involved in feeding. And we wanted to determine how this brain region is involved in both feeding behavior and emotion. So what we did is we um, determined how this brain region controls feeding behavior. So we determined that it controls feeding behavior by projecting to a brain region called the lateral septum. So this lateral septum brain region, you can think of it as kind of a, a brain hub. So it's kind of like Grand Central Station. It receives inputs from a number of different brain regions that convey uh, information about where you are in space, conveys um, emotional input, and then it sends this information to brain regions that control feeding. So we think that this circuit is involved in, in responses to changes in emotion, adaptively um, changing your food intake to respond to that change in emotion state. So what we're doing now... So you were working, with, not with humans, you were working mice. in a mouse model, right? Exactly. Just give us a, a brief thumbnail of what you did with these mice. What did sure. you do? So what we do is we, we start by manipulating. So we activate, or we use techniques to activate or inhibit neurons or individual brain regions and to see how these brain regions control feeding. So you can turn on or off in certain ways certain parts of the mouse's brain this in, within this region that you're talking about right. and see if how that what you stimulate affects what they do. Is that correct? Exactly. And then we go and we do the opposite. So we can actually then induce anxiety, so induce emotional states and see how that change affects feeding behavior and how that change affects these brain regions that we're studying. So what we want to eventually determine is the bidirectional relationship. So how do these brain regions control feeding and control emotion? And then how does changes in emotion control these brain regions? So you are really looking for the actual underpinnings, the structural and functional underpinnings within the brain the mechanisms within the brain that control or affect the things that we've observed in behavior over all these years, such as you described earlier. So, for example, if you're stressed, that you either eat more or less. What you're attempting to do is actually find the, the regions or the mechanisms within a brain that actually makes that happen. Right, exactly. So how did you, I mean, what did you actually find? in doing this, turning on and off certain regions of the brain? So we found that um, brain regions, some of these same brain regions that are classically, classically from decades, been shown to be involved in emotion and stress, it turns out that they're actually also involved in feeding behavior. So, so they, they have, share? They share the same function. And these stress-related brain regions send projections. So in the brain, you can think of the brain as a electrical circuit. So the brain sends electrical circuit connections to different brain regions. So these emotional brain regions send circuit connections to, to feeding related brain regions. And it turns out that these connections have a major influence in controlling feeding behavior. And that had not been reported before. Can we draw an analogy from a mouse model to the human model? I don't want to run out of time. I want to just get to that point. Well, is, there, is that a strong connection? Well, the, the good thing about the, the brain regions and circuits that we're studying is that they're very well conserved across many species. So these brain regions exist in mice, rats, primates, 
like um, chimpanzees, and they also exist in humans. So they, you can generalize some of these findings, or at least they were a good beginning. They're a good beginning to a certain to a certain extent. Certainly, you have to do similar experiments in 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 humans as well. So, just to get to the point before we have to stop, wh- how will this have impact, if at all, this kind of these kinds of findings on helping with clinical problems like anorexia nervosa or overeating issues? Well, we think that maybe it'll shed light into potential mechanisms that may be involved in how stress predisposes individuals to anorexia. Um, And maybe by understanding these neural circuits, you may be able to more appropriately develop drug targets. By instead of targeting drugs for the whole brain, you could selectively target drugs for individual neural circuits. That's very, very interesting and very hopeful. So I give you a lot of credit for this kind of work, and I hope that you'll continue along these lines. It sounds like it's very, very um, hopeful information, and, and perhaps, as you said, some very specific drugs could come out of this. Thank you so very much for coming in. My guest has been Patrick Sweeney. He's a Ph.D. student in Upstate's College of Graduate Studies. I'm Lydia Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup with the neck up, let him eat cake or a PB&J sandwich. Well, folks, coming out of the opera into a cold, nasty wind day, I'm hungry and underdressed in a thin windbreaker. My wife and I are rushing to the car, a man with many hard miles on his face in dirty, torn, very old clothes, turns from another opera-goer, having been ignored, and moves in slow-mo towards us. Now, for a long time, I've been back and forth on giving money to people begging on the street. One side of the argument is the theory of fostering dependency. I don't want to encourage people to live and beg on the streets. And I don't want to give money that might be used to buy drugs or booze, often the root cause of homelessness and hunger and much misery. On the other side, when I make eye contact with and really see these folks, they often look truly miserable and my heart hurts. Spare change for a cup of coffee, sir? While I'm briefly debating the psychological theory He and I make eye contact. He's shivering in the loose bag of his two big clothes, much colder than me, and probably not much older, but he looks 10 or 20 years more. And that shiver, I see, shoots through my theorizing right to my heart. I don't have my wallet, but I reach in my pocket for candy I know is there. Surprisingly, on top, I find a forgotten peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a plastic bag stuffed there for the opera intermission in case I got really hungry. I say, how about a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? He smiles and says, sure, thanks very much. You're welcome. He pulls it from the bag and takes several desperately fast bites. And here's some candy. Thanks. Goodbye, I say. My wife and I hurry on. Some new treatment programs don't ask people to stop drinking or drugging. Instead, these folks get a warm place to stay with their fellows and food and can still drink or drug off the grounds if they wish, or simply not because they wish, but just because they can't stop, because their minds are too gripped by the drugs to stop their slow strangle. So do we want to starve and freeze people if they drink or drug? My answer now, theory or no theory, is no. In the long run, Research may show I'm encouraging dependency, but for now, 
I'm going to take the chance of erring towards kindness and keep a PB&J in my jacket pocket. I'm Dr. Rich, PB&J in my pocket, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Next up, why 3D mammography will be the definitive screening tool for breast cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air, Linda Cohen along with you. Breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in New York State, with almost 15,000 new diagnoses a year, and on average almost 3,000 women die each year in New York from breast cancer, making it the second leading cause of cancer deaths among women and leading Governor Cuomo to recently propose that New York spend $91 million to make the state the most aggressive breast cancer screening program in the country. Also, the addition of 3D mammography, or digital breast tomosynthesis, to 2D mammography can improve the detection of breast cancer. Well, here to tell us more about all of this are Jennifer Caldwell. She's the Director of Radiology at Upstate University Hospital, and Dr. Ravi Adhikari, Assistant Professor of Radiology and the Director of Women's Imaging, the Women's Imaging Section at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank Thank you. you for having us. So, Jennifer, let me start with you. Mm -hmm. 3D mammography, it's said to improve breast cancer detection. Tell us about that. Um, 3D tomography allows us to see into the breast a little bit better than we would with 2D. It decreases the exposure for the patient. It decreases the compression needed to see the uh, structures within the breast, and it also increases patient comfort. So it, it's definitely an improvement. Help us understand, Dr. Adhikari, what exactly is 3D? And I mentioned in the introduction that it's added on. Explain how yeah, it works. Sure. Uh, when you get a standard mammogram, the X-ray generation and the detector, it's basically stationary. Um, with the 3D mammography, we actually obtain multiple images in, a, in an arc. And different manufacturers do it d- uh, different ways, but basically they all go through an arc those low dose images that are taken in that arc are then uh, fed to the computer and we can generate something that looks similar to a CT. It's not exactly how a CT is, is made, but similar to a CT. So we can get slices through the breast and some of that more dense fibroglandular tissue that may be hiding a mass, we can see through that and find a mass that may be difficult to see otherwise. So let me just restate this so I understand it. So conventional mammography basically takes images of the breast generally from two different angles. And as you said, the the camera, so to speak, is stationary. And you move around to allow for those angles. But with this 3D, basically when you say an arc, it's basically the camera is moving or the picture taker is moving across the field of the breast. So it's getting angles all the way through. Correct, yes. And this is added onto what already exists. It's done in addition to. Basically, the way that it was first um, FDA approved was that you had to get a standard mammogram in addition to the tomosynthesis images. Later on, they also approved a system of only getting the tomosynthesis images and then reconstructing what looks like a 2D mammogram. Um, so right now, you don't necessarily need to get a 2D mammogram if you have the technology to get the tomosynthesis images and then reconstruct what looks like a 2D mammogram. And the advantage of that is um, the radiation. Um, If you are able just to get the tomosynthesis images and reconstruct what looks like a 2D mammogram, you have reduced the dose that you are, um, are are giving the patient, basically. And so that that's a crucial thing because people will say, "How safe is it?" So mm-hmm. Jennifer, it, it in in effect, if you are getting just the 3D, it is actually more safe, less radiation. It's less radiation, and it's also um, less time under compression for a patient. So if you have a patient who has a tender breast, that helps them in their comfort level. So overall, that also improves it. So what exactly are the improvements when they say in terms of detection rates, Dr. Adhikari, what 
improvement actually has existed in terms of the findings. Yeah, and sure, and, and most of, of the improvement in terms of detection comes from uh, doing away with some of the masking effect. And the masking effect is where we have dense tissue which looks white on the mammogram, and it can mask a cancer which will generally look white on the mammogram. If we are able to use the tomosynthesis images like a CT and cut through the, the dense tissue, we'll be able to see a small mass earlier than we would be able to see uh, if we waited for that mass to grow. Um, and and it's, still, it's still pretty early, but they have done some studies that, that show that the cancer detection rate actually goes up uh, when you use tomosynthesis. Um, I read somewhere that it was 10 to 30 percent increase, Yeah, 10 percent to 30 percent increase in detection. Yeah, you will see those. And, and anecdotally myself, I have seen cases where I only see something under tomosynthesis, um, even in retrospect, knowing where the mass is. If I only had the 2D mammogram, I would not have been able to pick up uh, the mass. So is there, um, I mean, basically, is this the new wave of the future Jennifer, for, for mammography, are we moving away then, would you imagine, from standard 2D to this 3D as, as might be the standard of care going forward? Yes, I believe that we're actually moving forward from there. Um, 2D, I believe, will just be um, in the future uh, as a reconstruction. I don't think we'll be doing standard mammography. As we move forward, too, we're also looking at other modalities that are out there that can also increase detection, such as MRI and ultrasound. Uh, we use ultrasound quite a bit for dense breast um, in conjunction with the uh, tomosynthesis, and we're also using uh, MRI um, to reveal uh, hidden lesions that we may suspect based on the tomosynthesis. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm here along with Jennifer Caldwell and Dr. Ravi Adhikari. We're talking about the benefits of 3D mammography. How was this all, when did this all come about, Dr. Adhikari? You know, it was initially FDA approved around 2011. Obviously, they had done some research on it and, and it led up to that point. Tomosynthesis um, is actually an older technology, but breast tomosynthesis is relatively new. Um, so after 2011, that's when the first um, manufacturer actually got the FDA approval. There have been two other manufacturers since then that have got the approval. Uh, and this is one of those technologies because in radiology we see technologies and some kind of take hold and move forward. This is one that you can see people are starting to use more and more because you see the benefits right away. Um, and so this is one that I think will, will really become the standard of care over time. Uh, it's, it's kind of like when we went from digital or from film to digital. Um, digital is now kind of the standard, although there are a few centers that still use film. Um, I think moving forward, I think tomosynthesis will become the standard of care. And I, we can see that um, just anecdotally in our city. And, and when you go to conferences, you see people are just starting to use it, and it because it is so beneficial. So do you think there are any potential risks or downside to using the 3D from your experience or from some of the studies? Well, one of the risks that they talk about with mammography is um, the false positives and the recall rate. Um, and what they've shown with some of the early data is that the recall rate can be reduced with tomosynthesis. And the reason uh, being that when you have a 2D mammogram, sometimes you will see tissue that is superimposed on each other and it looks like a mass. And sometimes with tomosynthesis, we can resolve those issues and so we don't call the person back. So I think it can actually do away with that potential risk of, of the false positive and, and calling people back. And it, it, can, it can increase your accuracy. So the, the lesions that you actually do biopsy end up being cancer more often. Yeah, because one of the concerns I know, even when they talk about lung cancer screening with CT scans, is that if there is a small shadow or a, so that leads you to believe that there's a false positive in there. I mean, you don't know it, but you, it ends up being a false positive. Then you have to go in and do a biopsy. And there can be, as I'm sure you would agree, sequelae, things that happen that could create more problems, infection, all kinds of issues. So yeah. you want to avoid unnecessary biopsies wherever possible. Correct. Yeah, the whole goal of screening is to pick up cancers early. And with tomosynthesis, we can see that we do pick up cancers earlier. Uh, and then also, we want to get rid of as many side effects or, or the kind of false positives that we can. And so this is a good technology to, to address both, both of those issues. What about cost, Jennifer? I mean, when you move into new technology, I mean, it seems to me with any new technological advance, it usually is very much more expensive up front. And then over time, with competition and all kinds of, or, or they've, 
the R&D is taken care of, then the costs can come down. Mm -hmm. But how does this affect the patients today? So today what we're seeing is that uh, a lot of insurance companies are now jumping on board. They are realizing that there is a better quality of care for their patients that are receiving this. Um, the exam is a little bit more expensive than regular uh, 2D mammography. Um, some of the things that we do find, though, that there are still a few insurance companies out there that um, require authorization for their patients, and there's still a few that aren't um, allowing their patients to have this exam unless they found something previously and they're looking for additional imaging. Um, so sometimes we let the patients know up front that there is a possibility there may be a payment involved other than your copay. But um, patients these days are very well informed, and uh, a lot of them have already talked to their insurance company before they come in for their exam. So, is it, Dr. Adhikari, is the 3D mammography recommended then, based on our earlier conversation, for all women, or are there certain age ranges, more at-risk people? I mean, who would you say is are the best candidates, or you know, who should be getting it? So. When you look at the data, um, the full field mammogram has been shown over time to reduce mortality. Um, for for tomosynthesis, we don't have that data yet because it takes a long time to gather that data. Um, but what we can see is that if you look at who benefits most is the patients with dense breasts. Everybody can benefit because I can see in my own practice that even a patient with, with a more fatty breast, uh, we, we can still pick things up that we might not have seen. Um, but generally, the patients with the, the more dense breasts are going to benefit the most because we are going to get rid, rid of some of that masking effect, and we're going to be able to see those, those uh, masses earlier on, on those So patients. it's not age-related. No. It's really more just the quality of your breasts or the type of breasts that you have. Correct. So how does a doctor make that recommendation? In other words, screening, why don't we talk about what the screening guidelines are generally in terms of right now for mammography? Because it's, it's somewhat controversial. Mm -hmm. yeah. Jennifer, help us with that first. So right now we're still looking at the age of 40 unless there is a increased level of need uh, based on family history. 40 for annual screening? Yes. Okay. So yeah. women, once they reach 40, you're still looking at that. And, and are the insurance companies respecting that? Because it, there's been some recent Yeah, there has been some controversy. Um, and the American College of Radiology still recommends that. Um, in general, if you want to find the most cancers and, and, and help the most women, you're going to start early and, and do it every year. Um, and there is data to support that. Um, I think that the, there are other organizations that have used um, uh, the idea that we can maybe look at this at a larger scale and see where we can get the most benefit with, um, with kind of getting rid of some of those false positives. Well, it's this whole idea of the public health interest. I mean, you, you know, when you're looking at a large-scale populations, where can you save money? But when you're looking at the individual person, yes, yeah. you don't want to be that person that gets missed. Yeah. because they didn't fall within a certain category. Yeah, that's correct. So the, the idea is that if you want to help the most women, uh, you, you start at 40 and you do it every year. Um, and there's a lot of data to support that. Um, the, the large studies that were done, they, they included women in that age range. But within that, those women who are going to, let's say, a routine mammogram at age 40 would not necessarily seek at this point in time the 3D, is that correct? We are actually at, at, at 550 Harrison, we are screening everybody. This is with, with Upstate. Okay. Oh, yes, with Upstate. We are screening everybody with tomosynthesis right now who uh, who will, will um, you know, considering that there may be the cover. cost. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So we are not actually dividing up people by, by their, by, by their uh, age or, or their density of their breasts. We are screening everybody. So basically what you're saying, and it seems like the evidence is beginning to point in that direction, that this is the superior methodology and will probably replace the 2D MAMO going forward going forward based yeah. on what I'm hearing. Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, Jennifer? absolutely. I, I believe that's the way we're going to go. And yeah. is it available, readily available now? Is, is it available at, at Upstate? So right now, um, it's available in the downtown campus, and community will have it available in May. Great. Well, it looks like we're moving ahead, and I want to thank you so much for, you know, kind of illuminating this whole thing for us because it's something people hear about out there but maybe not really 
have a full grasp of. But thank you both for coming in. Thank you for My guests you. have been Jennifer Caldwell, Director of Radiology at the Upstate University Hospital, and Dr. Ravi Adhikari, Assistant Professor of Radiology and the Director of the Women's Imaging Section at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Yoga is not only a therapeutic discipline, it also has been the source of powerful images for many of our poets. Recently, Indiana poet and artist Zan Carter created a memorable portrait of one woman's low-impact, low-cost method to answer the demands of aging. Here is Old Grandmother's Anti-Decrepitude Plan. Every day she spends time standing on one foot and time sitting on the floor, going for a smooth one-handed sit-down and an equally smooth rise. Points off for groaning, points added for being outside. Balanced on one leg, she imagines she's a lawn flamingo, pink and utterly conspicuous, reliably keech and grounded. Sitting on the earth, she feels her spine conducting energy from the center of it all, the chi snaking up vertebrae, linking the planet with her brain. She imagines being green and growing, connected and true as trees, each chakra opening as a whirling blossom, assuring things can keep unfolding for her. She says aging is often about hard ground, whether gravity and other forces make all the choices that bring you down, or whether you meet it willingly, on your own terms, whenever you can. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink On Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we explore the strategies for living with someone with dementia, plus the new USDA food guidelines and what's essential, and, oh my aching back, what you need to know. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.